You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. And welcome back to the Strong Towns podcast. I know that on Monday I told you guys you wouldn't be hearing from Kia for a little while, but then I remembered we had a webcast we wanted to share with you. So several weeks ago, Kia hosted a webcast with Molly Rockman, who is a farmer at Earthdance Organic Farm School in Ferguson, Missouri. This webcast was just for our members, but we are now going to share the audio with you guys in podcast format. So please enjoy this interview between Kia Wilson and Molly Rockman. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Strong Towns webcast, Creating Community Through Local Food. I'm Kia, Director of Community Engagement for Strong Towns and sender of all of the emails that you get. And I'm here with my guest today, Molly Rockaman of Earth Dance Farms. Um, thank you so much for being here with us, Molly. It's really been a pleasure getting to know you locally. As um, some of you might know, I live in St. Louis and um, Earth Dance is up in Ferguson. And I actually have a bit of a personal connection to Earth Dance because my partner, Chris Bowman, also a Strong Towns member, was an apprentice there right when we moved to St. Louis. And I always think of Earth Dance as this amazing place that welcomed us to town and made us feel really at home and has really shaped our values for a while. So I'm really happy to have this opportunity to talk to Molly and to talk about how how local food and farming intersects with the Strong Times mission and what all of us can do to um, strengthen our local food systems if we think that that's the thing we need to do. So I'm just going to go ahead and dive right in. Um, for everyone watching, if at any point you have a question, just pop it in that Q&A box right at the bottom. And at the end, we're going to have some time for us to answer those questions. And do not be shy. No question is stupid. Go ahead and ask anything that's on your mind. So just to get to know Molly a little bit, um, Molly, if you could just tell us a little bit about you, how you personally became a farmer, and how you came to found Earth Dance Farm and later the farm school at Earth Dance Farm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So thanks, Kia, first for inviting me to be on this. This is pretty cool. Um, <laughs> definitely the most tech-savvy interview I've done. <laughs> um, so Earth Dance, let's see. I first was introduced to this farm where we are located as a 15-year-old. So often I think about how um, the impact of just a single visit to the farm could affect any one of our young people who, who come and visit our farm now. Because uh, it's shocking to think that I literally didn't even work on the farm. I just, you know, barely came up the driveway and met these old farmers, Al and Caroline Miller, and that left such a strong impression that I was wondering um, into my college years, what was going to happen to this farm when, when they passed away? Um, they were in their 80s when I met them. And Fast forward several years, I actually majored in environmental studies and um, knew I wanted to do outdoor education, but didn't find as much delight in counting populations of tree frogs as some of my <laughs> peers. Um, I kind of wondered, is this really what I want to do? You know, I, I love, I, I know that there's a need for this, but I kind of mm -hmm. felt like my heart was more on the human behavior side of things and really... I've always been passionate about um, health and nutrition from a human perspective. So um, it wasn't until I actually went abroad and studied in Ghana um, that I realized that 
all of these huge big picture, you know, problems and challenges I was seeing in the world of international trade, of, you know, women's oppression, of uh, farm worker justice, of environmental crises were really all very tied to agriculture. So I think I initially did come at it from more of an academic perspective um, and personal passion. But then as opposed to my family farming, um, I think that fewer and fewer of our generation actually have actually grew up on farms. So um, I see that as something that I would like for to be a part of the generation that changes. I would like for um, more of us to actually be raising our children on the land because I think that's one of the um, that's one of the reasons why we're at this moment in history of of our children having a shorter life expectancy than their parents because of the food that we're eating. Wow. That was a, a roundabout <laughs> way of talking about how I got to here. So I don't know if that answered enough of your question. I'm happy to. Yeah. Well, we'll double back around on it. I, I, I kind of just want to build on what you just said. Um, but to for a little bit, one more layer of background, your farm is in Ferguson, Missouri, which some of our viewers might have heard about from the national news, but um, it, that's certainly not, not all there is into Ferguson's story. Could you tell us a little bit from your perspective about what Ferguson's really like and what are the unique challenges and assets of having a farm there specifically? Yeah. So, yeah, Earth Dance, people are, can never believe that we're in Ferguson, but this farm actually predates when the city of Ferguson was even established. This farm's been here since 1883. The city of Ferguson was established in, I believe, 1896, and the farm used to span over 200 acres, and just like many farms, you know, they have shrunk in size. The first and second generations of Miller sold off land to development, and we're now in the middle of a neighborhood. Um, we actually have, uh, yeah, kind of grown into this position of being considered urban agriculture, which I find a bit funny because it's not urban from the perspective of we're taking up an old abandoned city lot. Mm -hmm. It's actually was agriculture before there was any urbanization around it. Right. Um, it's really more suburban or, you know, peri-urban as, as far as like urban planning goes, it's inner ring suburb. Um, but yeah, one of the challenges is that, for example, we're beholden to all of the municipal code regulations that a lot of farms don't have to worry about the specific count of their chickens, um, you know, being over the amount that are allowable in the local city code. That's just mm. one tiny example. They also want to know the size of our signage for the farm, you know, things <laughs> like you're worried about for the sake of your neighborhood, um, kind of development. Yeah, well, that's certainly stuff we talk about at Strong Towns all the time is um, a, buzz, a site that's focused in large part on urban planning and development and farms role in that is really unique. Are there specific, like other development challenges to growing food in a residential primarily area? Yeah, a lot of places, because if they're zoned for residential, mm -hmm. they're not allowed to actually have commercial activities happening mm -hmm. on site. So um, we're lucky in that the farm was a bit grandfathered in or grandmothered in um, <laughs> to, you know, the farm predated. But because some of those activities haven't been carried out consistently every single year, if we're reintroducing them, all yeah. of a sudden we have to get special use permits because we want to have a farm stand, even though the Millers had a farm stand decades ago. Um, so 
I think that more and more cities are getting a hold of this idea that actually it's not a terrible idea to allow farmers, urban farmers, to to sell what they're growing right on site, that there's nothing inherently wrong with that. Um, Even though it technically could put you in what people would consider a different zoning class, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, that having these mixed zoning codes is actually beneficial for the community. Yeah. You know, um, I, I ran across this stat the other day that um, 50 years ago, we were producing 70% of our own food in our own communities on average in America, and now it's 10%. And obviously, zoning is part of what has to do with that, but then also big changes in industrial agriculture and just in culture generally. Um, what do you think the impact of local food becoming less of a presence in our lives has in our towns from your perspective? Yeah. So I think people have, well, one of the words that I really hate when people use it <laughs> to describe what we do is the word cute because mm. I am not interested in being cute. Our mm-hmm. farm is addressing serious problems and has serious solutions. So yeah. I think that that's one kind of, cultural, I guess I would say, outcome of having this become more the abnormality than the norm Mm -hmm. is people cutesifying the the local food movement. Mm -hmm. And, you know, while I think there's, there's nothing wrong with having a wedding on a farm and having, you know, barnwood decor in your home and all (laughs) these things, it's like, we need to not just romanticize this and want it for its aesthetics, we want to want it for the, its values. Mm-hmm. You know, this is really kind of gets at our very need to survive in modern day times. I was just giving a tour, actually. I'm looking out here. I wish, uh, you know what? Maybe I'll let you see. Yeah. My view from my window here. <laughs> We've got some of our apprentices having lunch out there at the far of the picnic tables. We've got um, two of our staff taking their computers to work outside. It's so nice out. Yeah. Um, we just had a group of about 10 people from a local food service company take a tour. And one of the gentlemen asked the question, you know, I, they source, of course, from all over the country for their, their um, customers' needs. And their mm-hmm. largest supply of produce comes from California. And he's saying, you know, with all of these water crises and with the cost of fuel rising and all of these issues, they're seeing, you know, just to truck in truckloads, literally 500 pounds of basil that they're selling each week from California, you can imagine not only the freight costs, and it's so ridiculous because of basil being shipped in from California, <laughs> but also the, um, so not only the, the carbon footprint on the transportation, but the production of these items. That is mm. often totally neglected from the climate change conversation is what role agriculture can actually have in either making climate change worse or mitigating it. Mm-hmm. And organic farming is a solution for actually mitigating climate change because we are actually letting carbon be sequestered in the soil where it's meant to be instead of releasing to the atmosphere. So these are, these are just a, a small sliver of the huge problems and challenges that we are addressing with, with even small scale urban farms that we can be a model for. So it's not, it's not just some token, oh, isn't that nice? Some kids can go and pick tomatoes and, you know, and see how a vegetable is grown. This is like addressing some of our biggest environmental issues today. Yeah. Um, 
you know, and beyond environmental issues, economic issues. So Strong Towns, as you might know, is a bit different among organizations that discuss the importance of local food because we do so mostly through the lens of like urban resilience, how we make our towns financially strong. And we believe that a robust local food system is um, an excellent indicator, among other things. And like the climate change conversation is really important to me personally. But it's an indicator that your town is prepared to become financially strong and resilient in all kinds of ways. Um, so if you agree, I'm wondering if you could give um, an example or two of the ways in which you've seen your local community in Ferguson and around St. Louis grow financially stronger because of your farm or the local food system. How does it impact the region economically? Mm-hmm. So that is one of the that is one of the goals of our farm and garden apprenticeship program, which you're yeah. participating uh-huh. in, is actually training this next generation of farmers to actually have them see that this can be a viable career option because I think the, not just I think, but the the numbers show that the large majority of farmers actually rely on off-farm income to make their living. So fewer and fewer people are actually making a living farming and we're seeing, you know, some people are getting a lot wealthier with um, the farm, the, the people that own the means of production and then are um, subcontracting out the labor often to um, to workers who are not born in this country, but dare we say that, <laughs> you know, we don't want them to have jobs here because it's their jobs we want for um, American-born people, and yet, you know, often there there's not enough people that actually want these jobs because they're in such terrible working conditions. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, I know I'm sounding like I'm getting off on a tangent talking about farm worker uh, justice, but that is one of the big economic questions that we're asking that our, our politicians that our politicians are raising up is like, is the resilience of a small town dependent on such an influx of, um, of imported labor, I would, you know, and, and people who aren't being treated fairly, um, that is an indicator to me of a very weak economic system. Um, not because we, you know, don't benefit from those people's good work, but because the the equation doesn't actually help those communities. It just helps the few companies that are based in those communities, or not even based, that are operating in those communities. Mm. So, um, in terms of bringing that down to Ferguson. Uh, I mean, by educating people in how they could actually be profitable as small-scale farmers, we've seen a number of apprentices already go on to start their own farm businesses. So, for example, Paige Pardo, who did our program two years ago, has a a company not only um, raising a lot of uh, poultry for Mm -hmm. eggs, but she's also getting into consulting already because she's learned so much in her first year of raising um, a wide variety of farm animals, how to do it and how to care for them. Um, We're seeing uh, there's a gentleman, JP, who started a business called Straw Hat Aquaponics. You know, Mm -hmm. so he's talking about urban growing. He's growing indoors even. Um, There is gosh, so many people that have actually added on enterprises to existing family farms. So to make that more profitable, um, and even beyond the apprentices of earth dance, 
at the Ferguson Farmers Market, we've seen vendors who have had a booth for several years who have then been able to open a brick and mortar um, shop in our community because they've started to build a customer base at the farmer's market. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good transition into, um, I had a couple of questions about farmer's markets because I yeah. think they're, they're really interesting, economically, they're a really interesting idea. Yeah. Um, I was reading this one study out of England, actually, but um, it does apply over here, that um, putting up a farmer's market actually increases the foot traffic to the neighboring brick and mortar businesses from um by like between 15 and 27%. And that like farmer's markets are both sort of an accelerant to existing businesses Mm -hmm. and also an incubator for new businesses that sometimes, um, a farmer's market stall will make the leap into, you know, helping create a really vibrant downtown. I'm wondering if you have any stories about something like that happening in your community. Yeah. I mean, this one vendor that comes to mind in particular goes mm-hmm. by the name of banana yummies and <laughs> they sell like chocolate covered frozen bananas, you know, which yeah. aren't necessarily a local product in their ingredients, but they are locally produced. And, you know, yeah. she, this is a, a mom in our community who wanted to have a kind of an additional source of income and it's turned into a, um, a full-time job and she's even just recently mm. expanded her operations and moved locations because she was outgrowing her space where she started the brick and mortar in Ferguson. So, um, so that's one example, but I know of many others that um, the farmer's market is a real boost to how, how they can really capitalize their businesses because, you know, the barriers to starting a small business of just, not only having the capital to put into your actual product development, but then the piece that often people forget about is that marketing takes money too. But if you're lowering your marketing expenses by having that direct sale relationship and building your market space and your clientele slowly through weekly traffic at the farmer's market, Mm -hmm. um, I've I've heard that statistic too, that beyond boost incubating those new businesses, it also has a, uh, an upward effect, that, which is why grocery stores are, are having farmers markets in their parking lots because they're seeing, mm-hmm. even though it'd be, it's a little counterintuitive, you think, yeah. oh, wow, you know, we're directing sales away from our produce. It's like, no, people go to the farmers market and then they go to the store and buy everything else that they couldn't get at the market. So they actually see an increase in sales during the farmers market hours. Yeah. Um, that reminds me of something we talk about a lot at Strong Tones, which is just the importance of incremental development. Like what's the small low lift thing that anybody can do tomorrow to make your town just one notch stronger? Um, right. Because so often when we have conversations about things like farming, someone who isn't as necessarily into farming will hear that and say like, you want me to tear my house off the foundation and like completely right. revolutionize the way I live. And that's not necessarily what we mean. Um, there's, there's so much that we can do kind of one step at a time and it doesn't have to cost a lot of money. It's a small bet and it can have a really big return. Um, go ahead, please. Well, one thing I really feel strongly about that I'd like to mention as far as that's such a great point about incremental change and that I think, um, often wonderful, good food advocates think we all should have a farmer's market in our town. Right. No, <laughs> that's not what I personally as a farmer would ever advocate for because uh-huh. what the, inc- the incremental change that is, is needed is to first support the existing farmers markets in your region because right. until there is such a saturation of, um, of 
you know, sales really at those mm -hmm. farmers markets where those farmers are consistently selling out of the product they have week after week and they need to, you know, expand the volume of their production until they can show that through farmers market foot traffic. You're otherwise just going to be, you know, taking some from this one and moving it into another and right. you're going to be requiring the farmer to do twice as much work to make the same amount of sales. Mm -hmm. So I cringe every time I get an email or a phone call and have to tactfully say, you know, to somebody who's yeah. really excited to open a farmer's market in their community to say, please don't, that's not what right. is really going to serve the wider local food system because first we need farmers to actually be able to make enough income for one market without having mm -hmm. to do twice the amount of work for the same amount of sales. And if you can support the existing market, then they can capitalize their operations to be able to expand and service more markets. So yeah. that's exactly your point of incremental change. I want to make that point with farmers markets. Right. Well, and I know another way you um, sort of underscored that point is you developed a shuttle system to bring people to the farmers market in Ferguson. And yeah. that um, raises a question, which is how do your region's transportation challenges intersect with your local food challenges? Could you say a little bit about that? I could say a lot about that. <laughs> Great. Yeah, yeah. St. Louis is not known for having the easiest to navigate nor the most robust public transportation system, as you well know. It's, it's um, a sad state that we don't put a lot of our transportation dollars into public transit. We put more of it into widening our highways and, right. and making it easier for um, for car travelers, which I am, I'm totally a beneficiary of. I will admit mm -hmm. I travel mostly by car. Um, but I, I do think it's really important that we invest in this because for example, it would take somebody who lives on one side of Ferguson at least 45 minutes to literally travel a mile to a mile and a half to get to where the location of the Ferguson farmers market is because of the number of stops and, and transfers they'd have to make. Um, so we saw one, you know, the low hanging fruit that we could work towards um, yeah. increasing people's access to, to food, as well as increasing traffic at the farmer's market is to simply, like you said, offer a shuttle service. You know, while it would be great to have a whole new, you know, healthy food store, local foods, grocery store um, on, on that area where that, where there's not as much uh, access to our ownership of cars, um, but, you know, in the meantime, it's like we could invest the money into that or we could first try to drum up more interest in the existing farmer's market. So it's, it's certainly not without its challenges, even yeah. just letting enough people know about it um, really takes at least a full year of operation before we're really going to see a lot of usage of it. Um, so, again, incremental change. We have to be happy when, like, we have a dozen people riding this shuttle yeah. in the first year because there's that many people that may be changing their shopping patterns. It's not just like, oh, they're, they're just, it's a matter of like getting on a bus when they would otherwise get on another bus. Like this is actually changing people's, where they get their groceries too. Right, right. It changes a lot about your life. I mean, I will say that you are personally responsible for me not buying kale for the last year because <laughs> I grow it all. <laughs> oh, that's so, so funny. Things like that. I'm like, why is 
for not buying it? Oh, because you're growing it. I'm growing it. Yeah. (laughs) And I grow way too much of it and I give it away. And it's really really impacted my social relationships for the better, for sure. Um, Yeah. Yeah. It's been fun. Um, So I wanted to step back for a moment and ask a little bit more of a general question that I think Mm -hmm. I know that some of our viewers, I see Rolly's on the webcast right now and he asked me about this before the webcast, um, which is what is it about local food in particular that can uniquely make a community strong as opposed to producing clothes locally or, you know, like whatever other product, like why does food need to be grown close to the source as possible? What does that do for us? That's a really, really poignant question. Um, And it makes me think of a, a phrase that I heard or read years ago in a book that I'll never forget because it's the kind of revolution I want to be a part of. And that is a delicious revolution. So as a, as a college student, as a young person, I really, I was a common um, protester. I would go to a lot of Hmm. events to um, rally against, you know, what was happening with the world bank and IMF and um, the war in Iraq and just things that I really um, was becoming more and more aware of as a young person. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I kept coming back to this feeling of that I didn't want to be, I, well, I think that work is really important. And I, I think it takes a special person to be able to have the resilience to do that over and over. I quickly realized that for my um, demeanor, I needed to do something that was, that felt like proposing an alternative solution Mm-hmm. Um, to th- what felt like this big, scary problem of, yeah. you know, globalization and um, the degradation of, of farm workers and, and just things that I saw as real crises in our, in our, human, in our humanity. Mm-hmm. Um, and I felt like doing something small, um, which, you know, still has a huge ripple effect in our community, but doing something that's very centered and something that's so basic to being human, which is growing sustenance. You know, we, we can't go very long without eating. You know, most of us, it's our most direct connection with nature every day, whether you work in an office building and you're maybe outside walking across a parking lot to your car, you still engage with food, hopefully multiple times a day. And so if we can, um, use those, those little bits of people's days to actually connect people to a different way of growing that food. If they just start to educate themselves, you know, it's important to first educate the taste buds before you can educate the brain. Hmm. So if if you can retrain your taste buds, I mean, people who eat mostly conventionally or chemically grown foods will still say, but gosh, you know, there's nothing like a homegrown tomato. I Hmm. still tomatoes grown in that good Missouri soil. You know, there's a, there's like a terroir, I guess they say in in the wine world, there's a terroir associated with local food Mm -hmm. that you don't really get that feeling with locally sewn clothing. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Yeah. I've been thinking a lot about the, the aesthetics of the things that I like and how much I, my politics are influenced by my taste buds, by my Mm -hmm. sort of like natural inclinations. But, Mm -hmm. you know, since we started talking about it at Strong Towns, it seems like local food is something that you don't even have necessarily have to be like a big crunchy granola hippie (laughs) to um, like see an impact in your community immediately because it's Mm -hmm. something that we buy almost daily sometimes or weekly at least. Um, It's such a constant 
part of our transactions. Right. right. I mean, it's food is very politicized. And at the mm-hmm. same time, I feel like it is and has the potential to be, I should say, the most nonpartisan issue that we right. can come together on because there's not too many people that can argue with wanting to have a healthy food supply mm-hmm. for our country. And there's not too many people that could argue with the benefits of doing that on a local, as local level as possible. Really the, um, the biggest things in our way are unfortunately the, the agribusiness conglomerates that see it as a threat to their profitability. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think this is where being grassroots and being small and having agility is yeah. really beneficial to the local food movement because we're not waiting for, um, you know, we're building those relationships directly with customers. We're seeing our bank account go up directly because mm-hmm. of how many people are seeing on Facebook a video of the food that they can find tomorrow at the farmer's market. I mean, this is, this is the exciting and daunting world we live in. We're so connected to screens like we are right now, (laughs) but let's leverage this and say, Oh, because of this, I'm going to go and spend $10 more at the farmer's market this weekend. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's a good segue into sort of, I have like a little rapid fire three questions for you. Um, I'm starting from the standpoint that everyone who's watching this, like loves this, is completely convinced that local food is something they need to be a part of. Um, So I want to start with, if someone who's watching this says like, wow, this is really exciting, but I'm probably not going to get down in the dirt and grow anything today. um, What are some ways that um, a total neophyte could support their local food system besides the obvious go to your farmer's market, maybe get a community supported agriculture share, CSA um, Mm -hmm. or something like that. I'm so curious. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I have a tack from many different approaches. So for any people who get fired up about policy, Google Farm Bill 2018. This Mm. is crucial. So this is something that people don't think about. You hear Farm Bill, you think, oh, that's, you know, has to do with large scale commodity production. Yes, it does to a great degree, but that's also where a lot of our SNAP dollars, that's not where a lot of, that's where the SNAP benefits come in for people who care about food access. That's where um, the beginning farmer rancher development program is funded. That's where, um, People, that's where farmers who are growing organically, who ridiculously have to get certified to show that they're not using prohibited substances, you know, but that's where you get cost share of organic certification. There's so many different great programs that the Farm Bill covers um, that we need to maintain in order to actually shift our food supply. So I'm a little bit more of a, um, personally, like wanting to have less government interference in some economic realm. But in the meantime, I kind of see us in this transitional state of our farm is going to utilize all of the government resources we can because goodness knows that the larger scale farms are utilizing those. And so in order to even have a chance of competing, um, we need to actually use the boost while they're available to us um, until we can get over this kind of hump of doing it all on our own. So anyways, that's all to say that look at how farm bills can support more organic production and more food access is, is my personal belief, but, um, but just even become informed about it. Another way people could get involved, you already mentioned it, is simply to not just go to their local farmer's market, but find some way to directly connect with a farmer. You know, every farmer wears a million hats. You know, not only are they growing the food, but they're often doing the marketing piece too. Even doing something just like 
a random act of social media kindness and <laughs> giving a review to a farm that you know of um, means a lot to a farmer. It can help those incremental changes can help boost that farm's reputation and help them um, market on a budget. Another thing that you could do is, um, I mean, there's always, you know, different nonprofits that are supporting this. So, of course, donating to a local nonprofit in your community that you know is working on food issues that you feel like you can get behind. Go to their events, go to, um, you know, donate an auction item, whatever it may be that's on my mind right now, of course. Um, But I don't know. Are there any other areas that you think you're curious about? Um, personally, all of them, <laughs> but, <laughs> but I think that's a good one to get us started on. And if people okay. have more questions in the Q and A, we can dig deeper, right. um, okay. and keep them coming. We've got some good ones coming in. Um, so the second group of people I want to give advice to is someone who says, yeah, I do want to grow a little bit, or maybe I want to process food or something mm-hmm. like that. Um, what advice would you have for them, especially if they live maybe even in an apartment or in an urban area where land is at a premium and it's yeah. not going to be their vocation. But I know yeah. that that's like what my partner who did your apprenticeship program, he falls into that gap and we've learned a right. lot. From you. So I thought I would give you the opportunity to talk to everyone else. <laughs> Great. Well, I think, you know, definitely starting small with something manageable that you're not going to say, okay, I'm going to do 50 trays on my balcony, you know, mm-hmm. of all of these different varieties, literally like, letting yourself just dabble in two or three crops at a time um, to build up your confidence. Cause we, it, we, we always, it's kind of like, you know, going to a buffet line, super hungry. And then you just fill your plate with too much. And then you're, yeah. like, and you're like, Oh, but I wasted all this. It's like it's the same thing. in the dead of winter, when you order all these seeds or you go to a plant sale and you buy all these seed things, you get super excited. But then yeah. the reality sets in, you go on vacation this summer and you don't, you know, you yeah. don't keep things watered and everything dies. And you're like, Oh, so right. much for that. So just start small um, with container gardens in the case of an apartment dweller um, or join a local community garden. Um, I'm not sure if there's, a, I, I would assume that there's a website where you could literally put in your zip code and find a local community garden to you, but I don't know of, of the actual URL of one. Um, I think Kia's going to search that for you. Yeah, right you now. can see my like um, Google face happening. Yeah. <laughs> Communitygarden.org slash find dash a dash garden. Okay. Well, simple as that. <laughs> Thanks to Google. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, find a community garden where you can just rent a plot if you don't, if you want to have more bed space, then you could actually grow. Another thing I'm doing, because I don't actually grow that many vegetables at my own house because I get so many vegetables from the farm, yeah. is I'm putting more of my time and energy into herbs and mm. fruit trees. Um, if you do have a small yard, you can kind of figure out what is the best use of the, whatever full sun that you have. Um, because by putting more of my time into perennials, I'm going to have to maintain them less and less as the year goes on, as the years go on, and ideally get more and more yields off of them. Um, and I'm also starting to just start sprouts, like literally, you know, whether whether it be buckwheat sprouts or onion sprouts or radish sprouts, you know, all those little microgreens and, and sprouts that are really expensive when you buy them from the store and they go bad really quickly. Mm-hmm. You just grow your own. Um, it's a super cheap way to increase your nutrition and yeah. in your own kitchen. You don't even have to have a windowsill. Yeah. You do have to have a cat who won't jump on top of them. That's <laughs> well, if you grow them in the jar and you're doing sprouts, not microgreens. That's but a good yeah. idea. I'll, I'll <laughs> visit mung beans after this. <laughs> so, and then the last question is, what if there's somebody watching who wants to just go whole hog, 
move and start a farm, what are like, I know that could be an entire webcast unto itself, but what are three things you wish you'd known when you started your dance? Oh gosh. Well, I don't know Mm -hmm. if this was as much of like what I wish I'd known, but maybe Mm -hmm. what I'd wish I'd done is Mm -hmm. work on a few more farms before starting Mm -hmm. this one. More so just like selfishly for having more experiences. I I am, I've learned a ton since starting Earth Dance and I'm grateful for the timing of when, when I did start it, because I feel like it's when our region really needed it. Um, But I do wish that especially livestock that I'd, um, that I realized that I had an interest in raising animals. Um, mm. And that's a really hard thing to like, of course, with my job now to like go and it's really more of an immersive farming apprenticeship is what I would need to really learn um, livestock management. Mm. Um, but so I would first say like, go and apprentice, you know, find out about um, if you want to just dabble, you can be a woofer, which is willing workers on organic farms and kind of do it almost as a vacation for a few weeks. And there's different farms all over the world. So you could use it as a way to travel too that are happy to host woofers. Um, But then if you're more serious about it and want to spend a whole season learning from a farm, you can do a part-time program like what Earth Dance offers, which allows you to have a full-time job or other work um, while doing the apprenticeship. Or you could go and spend full-time, you know, a full-time season on a farm. And there's a multitude of, um, farms that are looking for interns. You can search ATRA, A-T-T-R-A.org, um, and they have a huge listing of different farms looking for interns. But I think getting the hands-on experience is pretty critical. There's, right. there's more and more university programs that will offer organic farming programs. So great if you're in college, take advantage of those. But I don't think you have to go back to college to learn how to farm. Yeah. Agreed. Well, we've got uh, time for three or four questions and we've got some good ones coming in. So I'm going to start with one from Rolly. Um, Zoning arose in part because certain uses of land were seen as incompatible with other uses of nearby land. As fights over bug spraying show, (laughs) even farms next to other farms can cause problems if the farms are slightly different in terms of crops or if one is organic and one is non, etc. What can farms do to exert less impact on their neighbors and what can neighbors do to exert less impact on the farm? And I might build on that by saying, what are the challenges of um, where you place your farm relative to if it's in a city, if it's in like a a dedicated agricultural region? Let's talk about that. So this is one of the challenges in particular of being an organic farm is it is actually up to the organic farmer to maintain a buffer between their crops and somebody else's non-organic field, which mm. personally I feel like is unfair. I think that <laughs> it would be at least nice for it to be 50-50. Um, yeah. But this is to maintain the organic integrity of the crops they're producing. So first, there's the um, maintaining a buffer. Now, of course, nature doesn't operate in a silo. So there is still, even with that buffer, the potential for contamination to occur or for drift, they call it, to occur with whether it's genetic material or spray. Um, and I personally know farmers that have lost entire crops because of pesticide drift from a neighboring farm. So it is a real world issue and very sad for farmers to have to deal with. Um, you know, and it's, it kind of gets into the basics of conflict resolution uh, and, and the challenges of conflict resolution of, of having, you know, first even having the ability to have a conversation with that neighbor about that, but often 
they're not going to care if they're doing it in their financial interests. And if they care, they may not have done it so carelessly to begin with. So that's when, for better or worse, the legal system can either help you or not help you, depending on mm-hmm. um, on what the local county regulations are. Um, there is more protection for certified organic farmers. It's one of the reasons I believe in getting certified um, is that we actually have legal standing and you can show that, you know, with data that you have this amount of production and therefore you are expecting this amount of sales. And if you're missing out on it, then there can be some um, way to have the other party have to pay that. Um, But I think in an urban area to your question, you know, that is actually one of the few, not, I shouldn't say one of the few, but that is often a pro of being an urban farm is there's less likely to be large scale um, chemically grown crops surrounding you. Um, so we haven't had as much of an issue with spray or drift. Now, that's not to say that the mosquito truck, uh, the mosquito spray truck that goes through um, doesn't still spray our streets. And we kind of, we hate it when that happens, but we also don't have anything um, that we're harvesting for food crops growing so close to the street that we have to worry about that a whole lot. Um, and I have emailed with the city about it and they <laughs> assured me that of course it's safe. How could the EPA allow us to spray it if it wasn't safe? And I just, <laughs> you know, sometimes you have to choose when to bite your tongue. <laughs> got it. Got it. <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, do your neighbors love Earth Dance? Do you have good next door neighbors? We do have really good neighbors. Yeah. yeah. And I think, you know, some of them, honestly, I don't want to over romanticize it though, too. Some of them probably couldn't care less that we're here. You know, right. it's not like, it's not like everybody has a soft spot for organic vegetables. So while I wouldn't say that there's anybody who has it out for us who has had, I mean, the major complaint we got was out of our control. Um, there was a, a woman who, whose basement was constantly flooding whenever we had a major rain. And she thought because, um, she thought it was because of us leaving the irrigation on and we're like, no, we promise our irrigation <laughs> is turned off right now because of the rain and right. we're actually letting more of the stormwater soak in. You would actually have worse of an issue if we were paved over, but you know, it's, it's an education barrier. Somebody said yesterday, and I, I like to. I like to remind myself of this, that if people, if people really knew what you knew, they probably wouldn't have to, um, an antagonistic attitude towards some of what we're working towards. So to just be patient and acknowledge that like, not that, not to say that I, what I know is better or more right, but that we all come from different perspectives and just to relax and just like not try to be the right perspective because we're just all in this together. It doesn't help anybody to <laughs> get into screaming matches. <laughs> well, we have a question in that's actually kind of a request for advice. And I think this one might be fun from Mike Corbett. Um, we have a well-attended weekly farmer's market in his town. Um, I've been floating the idea lately of having a local nonprofit open and manage a farm market, AKA a daily nine to five operation that would oh. activate an abandoned gas station in a complete oh, awesome. space. Um, he's getting pushback from the farmer's market that it would kill the weekly market or at least hurt it. What do you think? And what arguments could make use? Oh, (laughs) that is a really good question. Well, from a farmer's perspective, I would say that I want my customers to have 
um, awareness of my product, not just on a four hour window on a Saturday morning, but I want them to not only, um, be able to buy it other days of the week. I want them to be able to see it other days of the week. Mm -hmm. And so I think that there's power in building the interest and demand for locally grown products. If people have more access to it. So this kind of, you know, an example is it's, it's a little bit different, but some people worry if there's, Oh, well, we want to be the only, um, we want to be the only major pepper grower at the farmer's market, for example, if somebody were to say that, and then there was another person that came in and specialized in all these different varieties of peppers. But this is, this is kind of the basis of our economic system, right? Is that if we actually have a little bit of healthy competition, it makes us get better. And I think that it actually increases um, consumer demand because if you're the only pepper grower, you might be a little bit more of an anomaly of like, Oh, I don't really know how to, work with that. But if they see it more, they're likely to actually purchase it more. Mm. So I was having this conversation with a sprout grower about how she actually thinks it's good that there's another microgreens grower at the local farmer's market where she sells at. And that's kind of even more of a niche crop where you wouldn't really think that would be the case. You think, oh, well, she must want all the microgreens growers to shop from her. But in reality, customers like choice and they like to be able to shop from both. Yeah. I don't know if that helps. I'm trying to think from a, if he's saying it's mostly from like the market manager's perspective, um, another thing to do is like, think of, okay, if her or his concern is that it would detract from traffic, think about ways that that, you know, daily open farm market could promote the weekend farmer's market. So put into writing some proposal where you would do, you would dedicate X, X amount of counter space or window space to sharing what's coming on at that Saturday's farmer's market too. Yeah. Well, this also speaks to part of Earth Dance's um, mission. One of your tenants is putting the culture in agriculture. And um, I, you know, I think when I first read that, I was like, what does that really mean? But the more I think about it, the more I think that we have to really create a sense that locally grown food, organic food, whatever type of food that we want to promote um, is a normal part of our community. And Elias had a question that I think we've we've kind of touched on, which is about um, how farmers markets are actually a social enterprise, not just business and a way to make money, but they're actually something that can activate a community. Um, Have you seen the market? Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. I could go on for days about (laughs) the the community um, building aspect of the Ferguson farmer's market. So as you can imagine in a community like Ferguson, that's literally just been put under a microscope and had so many conflicting viewpoints surrounding it and within it amongst our residents, even, um, there is a lot of, uh, a lot of room for huge valleys to grow between these kind of schools of thought of, of, like pro-protesters and anti-protesters and Mm. pro-police and anti-police, all these, you know, like things that just seem like they couldn't be farther apart from each other. But when you have a market where people show up and I just, I feel like so much a part of, you know, being here on this planet is like showing up and like (laughs) not just hiding behind a screen, throwing, you know, hurling, um, digital insults at people, but if you actually have face-to-face conversations with people mm-hmm. and you see, you know, them bringing their kids to market and, you know, letting their kid like eat a, um, 
you know, a fresh ear of corn or I don't know, <laughs> trying to think of like humanizing these people that we think of as, as terrible people because they're just become a caricature of themselves. Mm. You know, this is where I think that healthy race relations can come out of, out of Ferguson is, and there already is a huge racial diversity of people that are not only shopping there, but are vending there. And this is not even just talking about black and white. There's Hispanic people. There's people that, you know, barely speak any English who have booths there. And yet they have become a vital part of the fabric of our community because of their weekly presence. And it's that consistency of showing up that where I think that farmers markets have a real power to transform the feeling of being in a community, not just the economics of it. Mm, That's a great answer. And thank you for providing all that context. I think that's heavy on a lot of people's minds, um, but it's so important to recognize the opportunities we have. Um, So I think we have one more question that I'd like to make some time for, and it comes from Jack Rowe. Um, He says, sprawl, quote unquote, carries a negative connotation for me. However, with the exponential increase in the human population, it appears we will inevitably sprawl either up up vertically or out horizontally, which is tending to be what America tends to do. Um, And Ferguson is certainly in some ways a part of that. As the conversation that we're having has alluded to is not the more serious challenge that good production be localized so much that each localization is relatively independent regarding the essentials of life. And I'm gonna reinterpret that question a little bit to say basically, can you live on local food alone is that the goal um, of earth dance to be a hundred percent of somebody's diet locally um or what are the feasibility challenges as we concentrate perhaps and make our cities more dense to putting more local food on plates Mm -hmm. so localizing our diet would of course require changing our diet not Mm. just changing from the perspective of where we get it from but also what we're eating. Um, So what is growing in any given season in any given place then becomes like, if you kind of, I think of it literally as, as, as your plate, if you can just fill your plate with like the majority of things that are sourced locally, then if you prefer olive oil to local butter, go for it. (laughs) If you, you know, guess what? We don't have a lot of salt, um, (laughs) <laughs> manufacturers and uh, right. our producers in Missouri. So if you want some sea salt, you're probably going to be looking at non-local products. If you want chocolate or coffee, of course, mm-hmm. non-local. So I see it as a, um, as a, again, a, we're just at this like transitional stage in, um, in, in the human society of needing to retrain some of our taste buds into not just preferring um, to eat mangoes and bananas, but we might need to like try some pawpaws that are a native fruit to our region and are in the same yeah. family as mangoes. And we might need to, it actually could kind of be a combination of mangoes and bananas um, and flavor wise, <laughs> or we might need to start growing some more rare fruit varieties because that's what actually grows well without a lot of um, harmful sprays um, that people often say is required for organ- or for fruit production, but it's just because you know, our climate isn't really conducive to growing um, peaches in Missouri um, very easily without there being specific varieties. So, um, yeah, I think that 
we, I personally have made an effort to shift my diet and I also still love coffee and chocolate. So (laughs) I think this is kind of where everybody makes their own personal decisions about how far you're willing to go. But even to just start to build your own consciousness of like, can I make sure that at least one of the things I'm eating on a daily basis comes from a local farm? Um, You know, imagine the magnitude of impact that would have if every one of us did that. Right. I mean, that's something I've been thinking about a lot too, as we've been talking about local food, because I think a lot of the times when we say, let's, you know, make more urban farms, like my first thought is like, you will pry my avocados from my cold dead hands. (laughs) Um, And like, um, there's no way you could produce enough wheat for every citizen um, who wants to eat bread. And I don't think that local farmers, the local farmers I've met and know are not actually asking people to make that kind of a bargain. And there are emerging technologies that are going to make growing um, non-natives perhaps a little bit easier, but there's also like more to the point, so much, so many things that I've never tried locally that would probably rock my world if Uh I put the least amount of effort into it and would give me a lot of joy. Um, Uh It's not about deprivation. It's about finding new ways to enjoy what's growing in your backyard. That's a great point. And I think I also want to mention that I think we do need to consider and not just consider, we need to actually scale up some of our farms because Mm. I think Again, it's like this chutification of urban right. agriculture that we think, oh yeah, you can grow all of your, you know, dietary needs on a on a um, a stamp or what do they call it, like a <laughs> postcards, whatever, postcards yeah. plot of land, and it's like, yeah. you know what? I think we actually need some farms dedicated to growing of a certain amount of volume so that it's still sustainable for the environment, but it's also just going to give that economy of scale right. where food prices are going to be, you know, still accessible for most folks, because you can only imagine how much, if you were a farmer growing half an acre of wheat, you would need to sell those wheat berries for in order to make it worth your while. You right. know, the whole, the whole other um, rhythm of growing each individual crop, each crop has its own rhythm and has its own um, soil requirements and, and tools to harvest. And, and, you know, we, we do need to have mechanization. I'm not trying to go back to like a, Oh, we just all need to grow every single thing that we eat. Yes. Yeah. Let's grow as much of that as possible. But in reality, we're going to be sourcing some of it from further, um, further afoot farms. Yeah. Well, I think that's a great pragmatic note to end on and um, to give someone else, something else, our viewers, something else to do, um, check out earthdancefarms.org for sure. And there are lots of opportunities for people to get involved, um, both locally. I invited everyone who reads from STL to participate in this for sure. Um, I know you have the Farmers Formal coming up in October. Do I have that right? What's the, what's the date on that? Friday the 13th, okay. <laughs> Friday, Great October man. 13th at Union Station. It's uh-huh. the most delicious fundraiser you'll ever go to. Yeah. And um, I would love to invite all of your viewers and listeners to also like us on Facebook. Yeah. It's actually mm-hmm. where we are a little more up to date than our website. So Earth Dance Organic Farms School yeah. is what we're listed as on Facebook. 
definitely. And if you'd like to make a go of it as an apprentice in St. Louis, you know, I live with a success story. <laughs> um, and I know it brought a ton of joy to his life and changed the way that he thinks about a lot of things. And you can just donate to Earth Dance and keep it going and support local food in your town as well. Yes. All right. Thank you so thank much, you Molly. So much. And thank, thank you all you. for coming uh, to watch. All right. Have a great day. Bye. Take care. We need your help. If you think the Strong Town's message is important, don't keep it to yourself. Pass it on. You can get more information and sign up to be a member of Strong Towns at strongtowns.org. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Bill, 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 Bill. That's the story. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. I like you. I like your vision of the of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit Agenda 21. Yeah.